Hello everyone, welcome to Passing Dimes, or hopefully welcome back. Dallas, I feel like we're gaining an audience, so I need to say welcome back because, you know, we're on the cusp of something here. We're on the diving board, you're about to jump into the pool of greatness. <laughs> Again, in the theme that, you know, it's it's cold outside, maybe beach is over, so we're, we're shifting to indoor, but our, our guest today can talk beach, so, you know, I, I'm not giving it up just quite yet, but uh, it's, it's time to go indoor, I think. Uh, I think so. We have a, uh, a, very, a really special guest on the pod today. A, uh, I like to call him a, a building block in the volleyball community. Um, big things down the pipeline that um, we get to talk about on this episode, and it's really exciting to, uh, to have him on the show. I hope I don't leave anything out on the bio here. So Colin is currently the head coach of the University of Ottawa men's program that's starting up. He currently coaches at the Ottawa Mavericks and has coached at the Ottawa Fusion in the past. He started the Ruse Club, which I think by far still has the best jerseys of all time in club volleyball. He's the founder of Can Fund, and he's also worked with teams at the regional and the youth select national team level. So please welcome to the show, Colin Walker. Thank you very much. That's uh, quite an introduction. It just means I'm old, I think. <sighs> it means you've accomplished a lot. Accomplished, I think, is the word that, that most people like to hear. So let's start on the obvious one. I think uh, thanks to social media, some people have seen uh, University of Ottawa the last few years popping up at college tournaments, university tournaments. How's it going so far? It looks like you got some guys interested in playing, but you're not officially in the OUA yet, right? Yeah, no, we're definitely not uh, an official varsity team. We're an official uh, high-performance club team, uh, which means the students fully fund the, the program. And we're not officially entered in uh, U-Sport. So, uh, yeah, our competition is uh, the gracious invitations from college and university coaches. Uh, either play it, invite us to their tournaments or uh, for us to go play exhibition matches against them uh, or scrimmages or training environment sessions as well. So we, uh, we've sort of shone, uh, shined a light onto the OCAA experience as it relates to university in terms of practice plans, practice schedule. Um, what can you speak of and how sort of the, the day-to-day or week-to-week operations go for um, a high-performance club team at, uh, at the University of Ottawa? Um, we've been pretty fortunate. Uh, well, I mean, I've only been there. This is my third stint, I guess, there. But this, this third stint... We've been fortunate. We, we are treated really um, like a varsity, pretty close to a varsity team. I mean, that's our mandate. That's why I've come on. Is our mandate was to generate a program that is varsity ready. Uh, so, in order to do that, we we did need to get the training environment to do that. And over the last, I mean, this is my second year, so we keep adding on to the program. So for us, we we have four practices a week. Uh, we have access to our high-performance uh, training center, uh, which is for high-performance athletes. Uh, we have that access to that uh, two to three times a week. We um, have actually accessed or taking on uh, lots of different coaches. We, have, we get access to student, uh, ther- uh, student trainers, uh, as, long as, as well as we've got interns working on our uh, physical uh, training component. Uh, and we've also just this year taken on two uh, mental skills coaches under the guidance of Kyle Paquette, who we all know in the volleyball community is our uh, national team program's uh, mental skills uh, consultant. So we, we're really building a program that uh, will be uh, ready to, to jump into uh, youth sport as soon as we get the go-ahead from the university. And that's sort of, we keep trying to build that program on a regular basis so the 
the on-court stuff, uh, you know, we had 44 athletes try out last year. We had another 44 athletes try out this year. And uh, the caliber of the athlete was pretty high. You know, your 40 athletes were pretty competitive. In fact, we ended up taking a roster of 30 players this year just because we are a club. So we do want to keep the interest level there. Uh, with attrition and uh, the realization some of these guys are not coming from a club program, they're coming from a high school program. We don't understand that training load commitment. So we've lost a few, but we're down to 24 on our roster with eight of them being first years and uh, four of them being uh, last year in their, in their program. So we have a good balance and we should be able to continue to maintain a good uh, competitive team going forward in the next few years as well. So it sounds like you've really sort of crossed your T's and dotted your I's with regards to building a, a culture there. And obviously you're getting guys, like you said, with your, with your first years to come in, you're building this, this commitment and in, in culture level within the ranks. What can outsiders do uh, to better help you grow the program and, and help sort of expedite the process to make it uh, the jump, I should say, from the high performance club to the, Vars, actual varsity U Sports, I hate U Sports, U CIS um, affiliated team. Yeah, that's a it's a good question. I mean, we've we sort of been mandated by Sports Services or the University of Ottawa uh, area that controls the sports uh, department and the varsity sports uh, to 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 develop that program. And, and any successful varsity program has a huge. Uh, community support and alumni support, uh, both on a financial and um, services in kind agreements. So that's what we're really. That's a big step for us is to build that com that component. We uh, last year we did pretty good. We raised over three thousand dollars in uh, small dollar donations from uh, local community. Uh, so that was a good start for us. Uh, we started an alumni group. Uh, where we had our first alumni night in March, which we had about uh, 25 people come out and uh, put on the knee pads and the and the uh, the bare shoes from the guys from the 88 program. But come out and we uh, had uh, two two nets going and we played uh, against some of the um, teammates or some of the guys from the team this year. So we had two alumni games going on at the same time, which was really neat. And then. We had a big gathering at Father and Sons, which is the big uh, watering hole, if you're familiar with uh, University of Ottawa. And uh, it was really well received, and, and the growth there, that's where we need to grow, is we need to connect with all those guys that have been part of the University Club program. I mean, it's been around since 88. So there's lots of guys my age, or 52, or a bit younger, or a bit older, that uh, are out there in the community, that are leaders in their community, both on... Uh, workplace and even uh, in communities that we need to get their support, uh, both financially and just in terms of being in connection so that we can give our athletes also opportunities uh, post-education for maybe job opportunities and things like that. And that will help us with the recruiting process as well. So we're really looking for those uh, leaders. Right now, we're really looking for leaders that were willing to give some of their time to help develop those alumni programs to help those things out. Um, one person can't do it all, and that's sort of where I'm stuck right now. I'm sort of, uh, <laughs> trying to be on-court guy and trying to be the alumni guy, and it's all... Uh, Too many hats. Taking a toll on my old body, so it's becoming challenging. So I am really looking for those people that would be interested in helping out that 
You know, everyone says we should have a men's program at Ottawa U. It makes no sense that we don't. We all agree with that. And now it's our time. The, the university has given us a window to say, okay, if, if you guys believe that, here's an opportunity for you to, to make it happen. And here's some things you need to do to make that happen. And so that's where I think uh, the community can really help us out right now is, is get in touch and, and find a way to help out uh, either financially or just in time of, uh, in terms of uh, time. Uh, to help organize and get alumni going. So in your opinion, why does the school have a very successful women's volleyball program, but there hasn't been a men's varsity program? It's it's really, I mean, we're the third largest university in Ontario. So we're a huge university. And the university really prides themselves on their grants and their research projects that they do. So it's really on the academic side. They really have an emphasis in the, in the general um, community of the university. So sports hasn't been a large uh, investment into um, making it making it as big and best they can. Uh, they have sports services who's in charge and have done a really good job of trying to make sure that the programs they do offer are well uh, financed so that they can run excellent programs. And that's that's been their mandate. So the issue comes down to money. And you can't add programs if you don't have the money. It makes no sense just to say, okay, we're going to have a program, but your coaches are volunteers, and you're going to practice twice a week, and we don't have any facilities for you, so you're going to have to train somewhere else. So it really comes down to us, uh, the finances, I think. I think now that we have the new athletic director, uh, they're really receptive to adding teams the right way. So I really think men's volleyball is uh, on the top of the list to be added. I mean, like you guys said, we have a really successful women's program and equity and all that, that thing going being said that it would make sense to have a men's program. Uh, it, and I know men's soccer is saying the same thing as well, but uh, we're both working our own way to try to help sports services put us in because they're willing to help us if they can. I think, uh, to speak to your point, I think the university just added a football program as well in the last five years. Uh, yeah. So so I think they are trying to step in the, in the direction of, of high performance and expanding their, um, I guess, their horizons. But, I, I, you know, I don't have to tell you how much a football team costs to operate. So I'm wondering if, uh, if they're sort of looking at the numbers and thinking, oh... What is another varsity team going to cost us? This football team is already costing us, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Well, and that goes, I mean, that, that was Carlton that added their team a few years ago. Was, with, yeah, uh, I knew it was, an, was yeah. Football's been around forever, but it's a good point because it's a good, good example of what's happened with uh, football. Like Carlton football, the reason they were able to come back and participate was because of alumni. The alumni came with a huge amount of money and supported the program and said, here, we're going to fund the program. So Carlton didn't have to put up much money to start with. So they were able to say, okay, we can do that, but you guys got to show that this money is continuous, and, and then they grow to partnerships right. for that. Um, so I mean, it would be very interesting. Varsity programs, that's what's happened, is that it's been the alumni support that's generated the initiation of that program. Laval football is a perfect example. I mean, they came and said, we're going to build you a stadium, and here's you know a million dollars to start the program. Um that's just the reality of Canadian sport is there's not a lot of money and the reality is we need the public or the private sector to get involved or, right. or the community to get involved to help the sports guys out. 
Nice, and I, I may have misspoke earlier when I mentioned the OUA. Would you guys compete in Quebec, or has that been determined yet if you guys were to join U Sports, what conference you would go to? Because the travel makes sense to go with the women to Quebec, right? Right, and that's, that's where we'll go. And, uh, you know, talking to Lionel, the women's head coach, he said it's made a huge difference on their athletes in terms of the end of the year, just the lack of travel that they've been able, they've been much fresher at the end of the year. Academically, the kids have found themselves much better at the end of the year to be able to study and be successful. So the RESQ seems to be where we'll go. And it, it obviously makes the most sense because we'll travel together for the most part. Um, so, yeah, we, we would uh, be in the RESQ is my understanding. And so, I know there's the RESQ is asking for us. Uh, I mean, they're a conference of five teams. Uh, and for them to be competitive, uh, they need more teams. Or not competitive, but for them to justify, you know, the birth in uh, – in uh, youth sport nationals, or, you know, they they want more teams because uh, you look at Ontario and then you look at Western Canada. They out there you know, way you know they're ten, fifteen teams in those conferences. Right. It uh, it's a good segue to bring this up. You spoke about alumni. You spoke of Ontario. Fun fact that we talked about before we uh, started this interview: the University of Ottawa is the only men's team to win a CIS championship that's from Ontario. That's right. So I think you need to start calling on some of those alumni guys to maybe pony up a little bit of change to, to possibly repeat here. <laughs> yeah, the unfortunate problem is they may not be alive. <laughs> but uh, yes, maybe their their their, their uh, grandchildren might want to be. Supportive. If uh, if my memory serves me, I think it was 1967 is when they won, which yeah, might have yeah might have been the inaugural I think CAAU national championship. Still counts. Still counts. <laughs> yeah. Can't take it away. Right? Yep. So you mentioned that it does make sense for the University of Ottawa to have a program. So just for our listeners who aren't maybe familiar with Ottawa volleyball or even Ontario volleyball, can you just mention your involvement as a high school teacher and being involved at the club level? Like, Ottawa's pumping out a lot of players, right? So can you just speak on what you've seen and, and why it makes sense to have somebody in that city? Because to me, there's there's always kids leaving the the men's program, whether it's Fusion or Mavericks, that are going on to play post-secondary, right? So it'd be nice to keep some of those kids at home. Yeah, definitely. We're sending kids uh, over to the Quebec side uh, all the time. We, uh, I mean, you talk to Kerry McLean, and his, we were competitive. Again, when I was coaching at Brookfield, and he was coaching at Colonel Bay, I mean, his players were all going off to Dow and, and making Dow a top four or five team in the country. So we've been sending good players away for a long time uh, out, of the, out of the city. Um, we know, I mean, the reason I'm back again is because we're getting uh, more questions from parents from the MAV boys team saying, uh, you know, is there a team, you're going to have a team soon at Ottawa U, we want our children to stay here, it's cheaper for them to stay here. So we know there's definitely, and the reality is these, these Maverick teams and the Fusion do the same thing, but the Maverick team, most of, a lot of them are francophone, so they're looking for that bilingual university or be able to study in their own language. Um, so that's an opportunity where Ottawa U presents. Uh, we do have the SAGEP right across, so there is an opportunity for them to go to SAGEP for a couple of years. I mean, that's a big deal for the RESQ is that you have a lot of the kids that go to SAGEP, so when they come out, they've got five years of eligibility and they're already 20, so they've already got two years of growth and development at their peak time. So um, the Ottawa was produced, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, the people we've pumped out of here, it just it just makes sense that we should have a team and give them the options to stay here. I mean, you talk to a lot of those guys that went off and they enjoyed their experiences, but they would have loved to stay here and represent their city as well. So 
Uh, I think there's definitely enough athletes here in the city to be a competitive team right off the bat and then go from there, uh, continue to develop the program here in Ottawa for sure. Now, it might be too soon to speak on this, but if the program gets up and running, excuse me, when the program gets up and running, yeah, do, you, Josh. do you see there being Both a kind of, um, do you see there being a partnership with Gatineau with obviously the full-time training facility within driving distance, right? So that could be an advantage of, again, you guys are going to be competitive right off the bat, but that might be another recruiting, recruiting portal where the national team's literally across the bridge, right? Yeah, I mean, that would, that would be certainly a definite thing. And I know I've talked to Dan uh, Lewis briefly about that when we, a couple years ago when we were first taking, thinking about coming back and, and starting helping run the program or getting it ready. Uh, that was part of the conversations that we had was how do we involve the uh, full-time training center. And Dan is more than willing to figure stuff out. I mean, it would be a great opportunity for his guys that are in the full-time training center to get exhibition matches um, against university guys when it's right across the street. So it's something that definitely could work. Um, even with athletes that want to go part-time to school, there's the opportunity there. So um, definitely, I think there's a great partnership there. Um, again, we're working with Kyle and, and Kyle getting us our mental skills coaches. I talked to him and he's going to re uh, talk again with Dan uh, later about stuff like that because he thinks there's a great opportunity as well. So there's definitely something there to be said. So I'm going to bring up, uh, I'm going to backpedal a little bit and go back to just the logistics of it all. Do you have a, a set schedule? Like I know that we'd, we'd briefly spoken about uh, college teams and university teams letting you come into exhibition matches. Is there a set plan each and every year? Uh, or, is, or is it more along the lines of like a, a typical club schedule where you have an idea of where tournaments fall and you just sort of pick it up from there? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of building off what we had previously, and then in this, the last couple of years, we've been getting invites, so we get invites to the exhibition tournaments here. We're sort of the, I would call us the fill-in guys. I mean, we went to uh, the Durham tournament last year. We ended up winning that one, so we, we seem to be going getting invites to that all the time, so the Adidas Cup. Uh, the Humber Invitational, which is sort of half college, half university uh, teams, we sort of be the fill-in guy. We... But we were invited last year. We got in there, got competitive. Uh, we were competitive in the terms of our play. And then uh, last minute again this year, we got invited back. And we were able to make it to the Constellation final this year. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're putting our names out there. I think we're getting our name out there is that we're good competition. Uh, we're getting more invites from uh, university teams to scrimmage against. Uh, Nipissing will be dropping by on their way back from Montreal. During the reading week, we're going to scrimmage against them. Uh, RMC is a hop, skip, and a jump, so we, we try to work with them. So, yeah, so we try to get things done. Right. Um, we're also involved with a, a league format uh, with the Montreal, so with the University of Montreal's second team, uh, McGill's club team. They're the same boat as us. They don't have a men's program, but they have a women's program. They have a club team, so we, there's themselves. And then there's a senior men's team uh, from Montreal called Everton. And they formed a league uh, three years ago. Uh, so we were in that where we play, each team hosts a Saturday and you go down and play uh, matches. Uh, they are actually coming up and playing us. Uh, we're have hosting the tournament on October 27th at Montpetit. We play best of five matches. You play two best of five matches in a day. Uh, we do that four times. So that's our set schedule for that. We also go to the Limoilu tournament. That seems to be a 
favorite of ours. So we go to that, which is the beginning of January. And then our last one, our last tournament of the year, we always go to is the Quebec Senior Open, which is the end of March. So we have quite a lot of volume. And then if other teams uh, looking for, it's hard during the season to get that type of competition in. So um, we haven't, we don't do much of that in in the season time. Um, this year we've actually joined, we've taken our, because we have such a big roster, trying to give guys some opportunities to play. Uh, we've, we've joined the senior men's league here in Ottawa and we uh, have our guys, uh, we have our, some of our guys playing in that. Right on. Playing time as well. Nice. So we'll include this in our show notes, but can you just give us a way that people can contact you, hopefully with money or like you said, if they have time or coordination skills and they want to be the organizer of some alumni stuff, like what's the best way for somebody to throw up their hands and say, I want to be involved in this project. Yeah, so you can grab us through Facebook on uh, U Ottawa Men's Volleyball. Uh, that's definitely, you can direct message us through that. Uh, you can email me directly at uh, cwalker at sportscan.ca. Definitely uh, give me uh, give me uh, an email and I'll definitely get in touch with ASAP. Um, we have a lot of guys in the Toronto area that used to play here especially when I, we first started up back in the 88 and uh, in the late 90s when we uh, when I was in my first uh, coaching stint with the, with the program. So I know there are a lot of guys back in the Toronto area, so hopefully get in touch with some of those guys or even guys I used to coach, even at Brookfield, I know are out in the Toronto area doing really well, so I'd love to hear from them as well. Nice. Very cool. So we'll, we'll shift gears and get into some other coaching stuff. Uh, let's start with your national team experience. That was was that a youth national team, or that was the year they called it select national team? Uh, so the first year I did it was the select national team, which was we just uh, trained, and then the following year I think it was we called it I think it was called the youth. Uh, someone will Donna will probably come back and tell me I was wrong, but it was I think it was the youth team that we uh, it was so the sixteen U team. Uh, so all the guys that were on the youth, the junior team this year maybe. I can't remember any of those. But yeah, so that was uh, two years ago. So what did you take away from that experience? Because it was a pretty stacked coaching lineup with yourself. I think it was Mike Hoskins and Kerry McDonald. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I was really, uh, I mean, both years I learned a lot from all the coaches that were there. I really, uh, I mean, I learned a lot in terms of knowing that I do know a lot. So that was a bit of a confidence booster. Is that my <laughs> thought process? I mean, I've been pretty isolated here in Ottawa. Uh, but you know, your thought processes and your skill development, your skill delivery and your practice planning and all that was, was, was just reinforced that, yeah, the, the, the great coaches do this similar stuff to what you do. And I, I learned a lot of other things on top of that in terms of, uh, just thought processes and strategies. I mean, Kerry McDonald's big, uh, and you saw that with his UBC team when they won nationals was that it was, so uh, you got one serve and you just go for it. And that was probably the one thing I learned that probably is taking me the hardest time to uh, process and, and to incorporate. And I don't think I've totally incorporated it, but just those types of things were challenging my my uh, my general thoughts about what to do and strategies and things like that. It was really uh, beneficial working with Kerry uh, and just seeing how relaxed he is, but also seeing how uh, how he uses data to make decisions and that was really interesting to me because I really found that an important part because you have a sense of things but when you have data to back it up it really may it really helps solidify your decision and make you comfortable and confident in why you're doing things and he was really big on the data and that was to back up what he his decisions were and I really think I, that was the one big thing I took away uh, 
uh, for sure. And I'm trying to incorporate a lot of that stuff into my my uh, coaching now. Can you give us an example of exactly what that looks like? Like, are you guys statting practice? Are you videoing it and going back and statting it? Is there a speed gun? Like, what is the data collection process? And then how are you applying it? Yeah, so, uh, well, I built it. One of the things I've done is I built an app for servers to serve receive. So in practice, I mean, that's, a, for me, the first thing is first contact is so important in the game of volleyball. You can control first first contact. Uh, then you have it, you're always giving yourself a chance to score. So uh, we developed an app that we can track where we can see server versus serve receivers. So you can know as a, as a server who is who are the guys that are passing well off of you. As a passer, you get to find out what your passing stats are in practice, which servers tends to give you issues. Uh, just that type, and it creates that competition between them. So really emphasizes uh, serving in practice and, and serve receiving practice other than just getting the reps in. So it gives them a more of a game-like scenario for them. Um, the other thing we'll do is we'll do a lot of video, live delay video. I do a lot of that stuff and we try to really enforce uh, them self-checking themselves, uh, trying to give them that autonomy to, so we tell them what we're focused on, what we're looking for, and then we get them to self-check themselves or peer check, work a lot on that. Uh, then uh, we do a lot of stuff with the Ottawa U guys anyways right now is we're looking at first ball side out and we're looking at creating a rally off the serve. So we do a lot of statting of that and video editing off of that as well. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, my, my next question, we've talked to a few coaches and I always bring this up. It's always nice to have like the theory and what the higher level coaches are doing. So you mentioned stuff that Carrie did at UBC and they won a national championship. So it must be great stuff. I must be able to do this with my 14U team and have the same success, right? So as a coach who's been at the highest level, how do you trickle that down to like what your university team can do, what your high school team can do? Like, how do you say, well, that's a really good idea, but you know what, that's not going to work for me, or that's a really good idea and I got to kind of ride the wave and be patient on this one? Yeah, that's, it's a really good point because that's what I struggled with was I, I mean, I, I coach elementary as well, so it really doesn't work too well in elementary or even in triple ball, <laughs> so... Uh, it really, yeah, I think I sort of equate it to walking and learning to walk. We don't take a child and put them on the middle of the road in a high with a lot of obstacles in their way when they're first learning to walk. So we don't want to put them in a scenario where success is really tough to get to. So we have to control the environment a little bit more in terms of making it safer for them to learn the skills, making it more enjoyable for them to learn the skills. Uh, so we want to give them some ideas and process that they can develop over time. So, you know, you want to create that, okay, we want the serve in might be your first goal. And how do we get that ball in? So we need the technical side to work on that. And then once we get it in, now you're doing really well. You're getting seven out of 10 balls in. Now let's challenge you to move up a level. Now we want you to serve to a specific target. So let's work on your accuracy. Now that we've got your accuracy good, now we want to get your, your pace up so that we can create more, uh, pace on your ball and get the ball to do more dancing for you. So now we bring out the radar gun and get your pace up. So I think it's a building process that we have to build as the athlete grows and gets older. So the time they get to that 17, 18U age, they're now able to have all those technical parts uh, consolidated. And now we can ask them to go and work on the, the, the concept of going hard at it or understanding the, the, the more mental side of the game of, of that server or, or whatever the skill happens to be. Um, with that though, I still we still have to develop that read, that decision-making process as they're growing with these skills as well. But I think, 
again, developing their brain with the neural pathways of developing good choices and making good decisions, that will only benefit them later on. Even if they're not using that same technique, they still have that decision-making uh, knowledge in their brain that will allow them to help with the unique situations they're now finding themselves in. So I, I think it really has to be a developmental thing. And, I, and again, I think walking is a perfect example. How do we teach toddlers to walk? Uh, what type of environment do we put them in, what challenges do we put them in, and then how do we grow? And we look at what we can do now. We can text with our thumbs and not look and still walk. For the most part, we can chew gum and walk. We can do a lot of really creative things while we're walking now. Why? Well, it wasn't because we were trying to do those really tough things right when we first, when we were a one-year-old. We developed basic skills and we continue to develop them in unique environments. And we kept changing the environments on them and kept building those neural pathways in the brain. So I think that was the best. Uh, I think that's sort of what I've taken away from all of that. No, it's very interesting you say that. I can't tell you how many practices Josh and I had when Josh was was helping me get ready for international competitions, where we just we did trial and error with the with the radar gun, and we said, okay, your float serve is this. What's it doing at this speed? Uh, and then, I mean, not to give away our secret, but what we came up with a range where I think the ball. For what I wanted to achieve with my serve, the ball needed to be between, I think it was 56 and 60 kilometers an hour on a float serve for it to dip at the end so that when the player was receiving, it was still moving while their platform was set. So it's really interesting you say that because you know you do, you do build that up and I think that's a good point for people to know that there is... There's always stuff you can get better at, but there's always the foundational stuff that can be modified and um, built upon to really sort of fine-tune a high-level game. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, I mean, you're, just not, you're not born with the high-level game. You're so, and, you know, the interesting thing you talk about that, uh, Kerry, again, Kerry with all his, Kerry McDonald with all his stats, that was a big thing. He, he loves research, so he's gone out and found all these things where they've studied all that with the serve and all that, and he's... He's got it. He knows he can tell you exactly what the speed has to be in order for the ball to do certain things. And it was really interesting, again, listening to all that data stuff. Because it really, like you're saying, is that once you find that range, now as an athlete, is how do I find be able to deliver that tempo at, or that pace uh, on a consistent basis? Well, it's now funny. you get into that yeah. block training type thing, right? Is that's where that, that, now that block training versus random training, how do we deal with all that? And and that's where, again, a coaching, you know, it's an art, not a science per se, is that you've got to have that balance between that stuff because you're you're trying to find that that delivery system of, of hitting that ball at a certain pace. Well, that's that's like a golf swing. And a golf swing is got through repetition over and over again until you can your muscle memory is there all the time. Right. Not a lot of decision-making made there, whereas hitting is a little different. So, it, you know, it gets you into another conversation though, as well. Well, it's funny because Josh and I got to the point where I could hit the ball off of my hands and I could turn to him and say, oh, that was 57, that needs to be harder, or that was 61, that was too hard. So it got to the point where we had it down to a science where it would come off of my hand and we could sort of look at each other and, I mean, almost, you know, almost spot on, but at least, you know, two, three kilometers in the range of, of getting it pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's what you want to be able to get to. For sure. So has there ever been any evidence-based stuff where your your reaction right off the bat is like, there is no way. Like the one thing that I, I always speak with Carrie about is just their philosophy where 
UBC threw out the ace-air ratio and they were going to go ahead and miss serves because, like you said, they just wanted to get the other team out of system and they were going to bang serves. And if they missed 10 and only got six aces, that's fine because the other team was still out of system, I don't know, 50% of the time or whatever the number is, right? So has there ever been like a stat or a study done where you're kind of like, I, I see it, but I'm, I'm not doing it. I'm not buying it. Uh, well, I'll, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, serving one, that to me is the one that, I, I just say you can't score a point when the ball, that you can't score a point unless the other team's touching the ball. So if you're serving the ball out, you can't score a point. So there has to be some point where, and again, it was probably a stat, and that's why Kerry does all the stats. But for, like for Ottawa, you, we, the reality is if we're missing four serves in a row, we haven't scored four points in a row, and our side-out efficiency is not at 100%, so we're not siding out, so we're even at four-all. So we have to find a way. I think it's, it's the same with the, with the with the MAV girls that I'm coaching now, is we have to find a way to, I think, can we strategically use this, use the ball to create, give us a chance to score where it's not about the going for the ace part. Can we use a serve that we know we can accurately, accurately put the other team at a disadvantage or at least make them touch the ball and then potentially take them out of system that gives us an opportunity to play a ball. Uh, I mean, Kerry's stats are all at the 50-50 range, right? He says, as soon as there's a pass, there's a three, it's an 80% side out. Uh, and when we get them passing a one or a two or a one in a four-point system, we're at a 50-50 ball, and that's what we're trying to get to. Uh, with where we're at, we're, we're, that would be great to have, but I think if we put the ball in, we can get to a 75. Maybe there's there, Right now our stats are saying their side-out ball is about 55%, so it's, it still makes more sense for us stat-wise to put the ball in play and, and take our risk that way. So I, I've known you for a long time, and you've always been one of the coaches who really bought into LTAD. And just listening to you speak now, it seems like you're going to be a lifelong learner. What's making you so passionate about this? Is it your teaching background? Is it just something you've always been interested in sports? Is kind of that extra layer beyond the physical part? Like, what kind of gets you excited to dive deep into this stuff? Uh, I just the idea of how people learn, how people get better, how, what, what is excellence? Like, how do people become great at something? Um, you know, I was always good at everything, excellent at nothing. Uh, that's why I was a gym rat, and and so now I'm sort of really, you know, really interested in how do how do pe pe people become great? And uh, so I've done a lot of work on I'm trying to learn that type of stuff, and that got me into the LTAD, got me into growth mindset. Uh, now I'm moving into you know uh, I've done flow state and uh, that that concept of uh, being in the zone. Uh, the other one is, is now I'm moving a little bit more into uh, living wholeheartedly with uh, how, how to live a wholehearted life and being vulnerable and being a whole person, uh, which all relates to sport and being a good teammate. And I just like learning about people and how people develop and what are the best ways to do it. Uh, you know, being someone that, that feels they're, I'm imperfect, so how can I work on being better? Because I know there's no such thing as perfection, but the striving for f perfection is always something I've been really interested in. Um, so I just, yeah, I, just, I do it with teaching. I mean, everything I learn applies both to my coaching and to my teaching. I mean, I'm teaching grade four or fives about growth mindset. I'm teaching them about how their brain works and how they learn, and they just love it. They eat it up, and they they find ways to get more engaged in school. So that makes you know it makes me feel good that I'm able to impart that stuff to them, and then I, it works with the athletes as well. Like they 
they're more engaged in practice when they know they have there's a purpose behind it. There's they have some control over it. They understand that there's frustration and mistakes are, are a big thing. And that just made you know, I think about the way I was coaching way back and when I first started coaching and mistakes were in practice were terrible. You don't know mistakes. And and now I realize that was you know, that was not the way to do it. it they, they weren't, they're not learning if they're not making mistakes. That's what the science tells us now. So um, I just find that i got to get better. Uh, if I ask my athletes to get better, uh, then I should be doing the same thing. I should be asking the same of myself to continue to get better and learn. So that's, I guess so that's why I jumped all over it. What does growth mindset actually look like in your gym? Because to me, that's it's almost getting overused right now. It's kind of the trendy word between that and process this and process that. Like, what does it physically actually look like in your gym right now when you're coaching whatever team? Pick one well, of the dozen teams you're coaching right now. But load what is, management. Well, load management too. Like, there's all these buzzwords in sports right now. Like, what are you actually doing? Like, practically that we can you know steal for mostly me, but our listeners as well. Yeah, so in the gym, I think for me, it's about uh, the communication with the athlete and giving them the autonomy, some some autonomy in the program. And I think that's, uh, in terms of the way we do things, is giving them as much leeway into terms of how do we want to do things, uh, educating them. Uh, like, I think the biggest thing I've done is educate them on what growth mindset is and how that applies to them and what they can, and how do they use that. And then... Um, bring that to practice is like, 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 why are you just touching the ball because you're afraid to make a mistake? Like that's, let's just go for it. Like our teammates will, yeah, the drill breaks down, but we toss the ball in right away and we keep going. So if you know, that's the only way you're going to learn. So I think it's a more of a reinforcement of them understanding, especially dealing. I mean, girls are more, females tend to be a little more susceptible to perception of, when they make a mistake, the perception that they feel around from their peers. So it's really uh, emphasizing that you've got to make mistakes. We've got to make mistakes and we just got to and analyze the mistake and figure out, okay, what can I do to fix this? And I know that the mistake is allowing me to get closer to what I really want to be able to do. Um, and, and that to me is really helped in the gym in terms of getting um, the, girls, the girls to buy in and to push themselves forward and to work hard and to trust uh, their teammates and trust themselves. It's just been, uh, to me, I've seen a lot more development in the, in the athlete from that. And again, I, I, the classroom is even more of a better example for me because grade four, fives, uh, sixes, you're getting parents, you know, emailing you, telling you they're still talking about, uh, you know, Mr. Walker, you know, I, if I go to Mr. Walker and tell him I have uh, forgot my homework at home, He's not going to like that. I got to come with a solution. I can't come with. I, he doesn't like problems. He just like you like solutions. So I got to come with a solution for him. So I'm going to tell him I'm going to do this. So now I'm giving. You know, those kids are starting to think about. Okay, take ownership of what what I'm doing. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing with growth with growth mindset is ownership of your learning. Uh, is is what I see is the biggest benefit right now. Is because athletes take responsibility. They're not just robots doing what you're telling them to do anymore. Right. Very cool. I, I do have one more coaching question that hopefully I can steal from you. Uh, so again, an experienced coach, you've coached your own children, but you've also coached, many people remember, the Prime Minister's son. So can you give us some advice of how you can deal with parents and coaching volleyball? Because if that one goes wrong, maybe your citizenship gets taken away, your taxes get messed up. Like there, yeah. there are some risks there, I'm betting. Like, it turns out you've been audited a couple of years in a row there. <laughs> uh, 
No, I know. There is no problem there. They're very supportive. Uh, for me, it's being open and honest communication with the parents now. And I think that's come a lot. I've learned a lot of that, again, from teaching uh, because you get a lot more teacher uh, parent involvement uh, as a teacher. But I think what the biggest thing I've done is just tell them this is, this is my experience. Um, this is what I want to offer your child. This is the way I do things. These are the decisions we make. Um, and sticking to that and, and giving them the 24-hour rule. And it helps being, you know, 6'3 and bald and grumpy looking. It doesn't hurt to be uh, that way as well. People tend to not want to say, you know, question you. But I think it's it's also being willing to say you made a mistake or you, you've Done, you've not made the right decision and the, being able to say, okay, this is, yeah, maybe I, I should have gone this way. I think that's another thing is learning, and that's the hardest thing I've learned, is to learning to admit you've made mistakes um, because you get more respect that way. And being willing to fix the problem, whatever it is, is the way to fix the problem. Um, but have your values, your, your system, what you want to do laid out early and stick to it as best you can and make your decisions around that. And when... It doesn't because of the day-to-day -day operation. Something happens. Just be willing to say, "This is, I made a mistake, or I chose to go this way because." And as long as you're comfortable and confident with you, I think parents end up respecting that in the end. Nice. Uh, yeah. So we, we've or taken. They, I mean, the other thing is that they're they're free to go find somewhere else to play. That's the good thing too, right? It's, you're, I, I'm more than willing to give a player the release. I, there, there's, there's no reason to be here if you're not enjoying yourself. There's so, so many things I'm learning right now. <laughs> I don't want I don't want to I don't want to take any more of your time, but I want to keep listening to you talk. But uh, <laughs> no, I just want to say thanks for coming on. I mean, there's so many little nuggets of information that uh, everyone can can listen to, and it was uh, it was really informative. And I just want to say thank you for coming on. I appreciate the time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So one thing we like to do to wrap up a show is we usually like our guests to tell a, a unique volleyball story that either volleyball's presented them a, a unique experience that they wouldn't have found without volleyball, or maybe you're like Dallas and you get pulled over by basically the military in Brazil and you're held at gunpoint. Like, is there any, you look back at volleyball and be like, wow, that was, that was a great opportunity and I wouldn't have got that if I hadn't, you know, put in all these hours into my sport? Or is there anything crazy where you're kind of like, wow, I'm at the highest level of my sport and I can't believe that that just happened? I, I don't think I'm at the highest level of my sport. I wish I was. I, I still, I'm even at 52. I'm still striving to be at least get to the university level. I'm still hoping for that someday. Um, I think uh, way back where I first got, not really got started, but once I got into the club system and stuff and uh, working at Brookfield, I got the uh, the, the great opportunity to work with um, uh, Dave Preston with the provincial team, Ontario provincial team, and we went to uh, Cuba. And just, I would never go, I've never been to Cuba, I would never got the chance. We got to stay in Havana, we got to train, I got to see the real Havana, the real Cuba. Uh, that was really interesting, seeing that training environment, those athletes go through there. Uh, it was really, it was really interesting. We saw, I mean, just to tell the difference between our privileged uh, first world country, Canada, our athletes, after we do a five set match with them, we have ice bags all over us. Meanwhile, those guys are off doing uh, power squats with guys on their back and doing other training after they're finished with us. And it's real interesting to see the different lifestyles. I never would have had an opportunity to do that. 
And uh, the funny story on that side, and talk, talking about getting arrested, thank God for Hernan, uh, <laughs> we were, uh, all the guys needed to buy their $25 uh, Monte Cristo cigars because so they could take them back and uh, sell them to friends and family in, in Canada. Well, guess what? You're, this, they're all minors. They're not allowed to bring those back. So s somehow I got volunteered to, to carry the bag. <laughs> and the customs uh, in Cuba weren't too impressed with that. So they uh, had to pull me into a room with these uh, huge amounts of cigars, wanting to know what I, why I had all this. And I thought I was done for. But Fernand uh, <laughs> came in and did his, did his usual magic and got me saved for a few bucks here and there. And uh, I was saved. Boys still got their cigars, and I, uh, I'm still living in Canada. Oh, so those are the guys that are going to fund the U of O yeah, program because you, you would have been like, hey, one, you wouldn't have got your cigars, or two, you'd still be in Cuban jail yeah. right now without me. Yeah. True enough. Yep, that's a good point. We've cornered the marketplace. Listening now, and remember that. Oh, that's great. See, that's why I love this show is I get to hear stories like that that I probably never would have heard Absolutely. anywhere else. Absolutely, that's wonderful. All right, we won't take up any more of your time. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks very much. Yeah, to the for show. sure. Great. Thanks, Colin. Take care. All right. Cheers. Another great episode, Josh. That was solid. Uh, I, I knew about all the coaching stuff. I didn't know about Cuba. No. no, but the coaching stuff was good. I'm sitting here nodding and being like, yeah, I'm learning so much. That this is, is awesome. true. He's got a very big presence. Uh, he, speak, he spoke very well. He spoke very intently about uh, parents and, and players, and it's good to have that uh, insight on the pod for sure. You know, this is two guests in a row where maybe somebody didn't know who Jeff Miller was and maybe they don't know who Colin Walker is just by reading their name coming up on the feed, but these are some of our best episodes. So hopefully uh, you guys out there in Passing Times Nation or Universe, Galaxy, whatever. World. World. <laughs> uh, the people who download the show, you know who you are. Multiverse. But hopefully you're enjoying it. Leave a comment. You know, give us a five-star review. Hopefully you enjoy what's going on. I, we know what's up. We you, know what's up. Even if you've never heard of the guest, you better download that episode and tell your friends because we know what's up. Right. All right. Not until next week. Bye, Mom. Bye, Josh and Mom.